0: Welcome to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive, featuring conversations with performing artists and industry influencers on what it takes to succeed in the arts. I am your host, Diane Foy, and I believe that you really can make a living from your creative talents. As a publicist, podcaster, and coach, my mission is to educate, motivate, and empower you to thrive with authenticity, creativity, and purpose. Hello and welcome to episode number 32 of Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Today's guest is Robert Carley, who is one of Canada's busiest and most in-demand composers for film and television. His music has received numerous industry awards and nominations, including 20 Gemini and Canadian Screen Award nominations five Gemini Awards, and three Canadian Screen Awards. He is the recipient of several SoCAN Awards for domestic television. He is currently working on his 13th season of Murdoch Mysteries on CBC and his third season of Frankie Drake. Recent work includes the critically acclaimed documentary Toxic Beauty, his third season of Winona Earp, and the Netflix miniseries Tokyo Trials. While recent dramatic film work includes The Education of William Bowman and Survival of the Dead. I talked to Rob about the process of composing music for film and television and the advice that he has for musicians wanting to get into that. Rob is also the co-author of a new book called The Awesome Music Project Canada, Songs of Hope and Happiness which brings you behind-the-scenes glimpses into the musical lives of a diverse array of Canadians. Singer-songwriter Michael Buble celebrates the way music cemented his bond with his grandfather. Renowned astronaut Chris Hadfield turned to music for comfort through the loss of a close friend. And Grammy Award winner Sarah McLaughlin used it to escape the torment of high school bullies. These and other inspiring tales fill this beautifully illustrated tribute to the songs, musicians, and composers that comfort us, move us, and lift our spirits. Rounding out the Awesome Music Project Canada are descriptions of the neurological research confirming the ways in which music is good for us. It improves our mental, emotional, and physical health, wards off loneliness and depression, and even delays dementia. To put it simply, music makes us feel good. So we kick it off with talking about The Awesome Music Project, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's talk about The Awesome Music Project first. So tell me about the book and the project and how you got involved and how it came about. All that good stuff. Sure.
1: So the Austin Music Project is a collection of stories that explore the connections between music and mental health, uh, as told by Canadians across the country from you know every well, yeah, every province and territory and you know different demographics like ages from eight to a hundred, and different, some musicians, some not musicians, some very well-known people, some not so well-known people. And all the proceeds of this collection of stories go toward research at uh, the Canadian, um, sorry, not the the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is CAMH, or also we also help to uh, to fund um, music therapy programs across the country. So music, anything related to music and mental health, that's kind of um, our you know we we are trying to help fund both research and programs related to that. So that's the. Um, that's a pr- sort of brief description of what what it is. That's the Awesome Music Project. Now it's it become more than that. The whole thing started about uh, eighteen months ago as an idea from my my friend Terry Stewart, and he said, "Let's let's collect these stories." And so you know, at first we didn't realize, uh, you know, what it was, what form it was going to take on, and how how a grand a project or an endeavor this would become. But it's become something much more than a book. Now it's really a, a campaign. Um, with, you know, live events and concert series and speaking series and podcasting and all kinds of different arms flailing in every direction.
0: Yeah, I went to the event at the Gladstone. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. How, how did you like it? It was fun. It was really cool to hear different stories in between the songs. Yeah. It was great. You were at. You were basically a
1: guinea pig, because that was our first time trying this idea of of really taking the book, which is as you know, a collection of stories and songs and a bit of science and then trying to bring that to life in a concert format. So, you know, uh, obviously it was, you know, there's things we want to do better uh, at those things and we want to change the events and they have evolved already. We've done a, another event since that time um, and we've got more planned for the new year. So, yeah, it's, it's a um, it was nice to do that event because it was really uh, an embodiment of what is in the book. Right, what are some of your favorite stories in the book? Well, they keep changing because uh um I don't know there there's there's so many different ones. Sometimes you read a story about someone that you you know or you think you know, and then you find something really interesting about that person, for example, Fred Penner's story I find very captivating. Fred Penner being of course the child children's entertainer. stories about you know growing up in Winnipeg and going to school. he was actually at I think the University of Winnipeg. Um, or sorry, maybe it was the University of Manitoba, not that important, but he was studying economics when his his dad passed away and his sister had passed away within about six months of each other. And this really, as would anyone, it really hit him. And I think it, it sort of made him ask questions and change what he was doing. And he ultimately then started, you know, recording songs, and uh, that was the sort of the the beginning of him as a as an entertainer, and not as an economist. And I guess we can thank we can thank him for making that choice way back then. And now he's, you know, been doing this for whatever uh, fifty years of a great career uh, as a as an entertainer. Um, Another really story that I just kind of had forgotten was in the book, and then read it again a, a few weeks ago. Was a story by a guy named Doug Norman, and Doug Norman lives in Belleville and he's a retired police officer who was studying from, uh, PTSD. And he has this great story about going to see super and then leaving and leaving a note, asking the manager to leave a note, um, for Roger Hutchinson about, um, just about how, um, the, the band has made an impact on his life. And then not only did the manager come back out, actually it was a, t- a ticket stub. He wanted to get signed and the manager comes out and says, "Listen, uh, Roger's not going to sign the ticket stub, but instead he'd like to see you backstage." And then he he brought Doug backstage and then spoke with him for you know twenty minutes uh, and was really moved by Doug's story um, about battling you know depression and uh, PTSD and how Supertramp and how the band's music uh, made an impact on his life. That then he he told the story uh, from the stage during the concert and Doug sat in the wings the whole time. It was just a really nice, uh, yeah, it was a kind of, it's one of these, and the book is full of, I think, little unexpected treasures like that, where, you know, it's not, Doug Norman is not well known. There's lots of people in the book who are not well known. We tried to make it, you know, yes, there are lots of celebrities in the book. Um, as you know, people like Chris Hatfield and Rick Mercer and Sarah McLachlan, Uh, It's great to hear their stories, but it's also, I think, really important to hear stories from non-musicians and from non-famous people because really everybody has a music story and that's kind of the universal aspect of the book.
0: Yeah, and it must be great inspiration for artists that are out there performing to hear these stories from non-musicians because everyone is touched by it in some way.
1: I think you hit on something very interesting because... um, While all musicians who are creating music, uh, they know that they have an audience and they know that their music has some kind of impact. When they hear a very specific story about how their music has played a role in their lives, I think it touches them in a different way. And, you know, like, for example, speaking with Ed Robertson after the Gladstone show that you were at and and his experience, you know, um, Ed is part of the Barenaked Ladies, of course, and that band is cited in the book by a story by Shaker Gotti, uh, Lieutenant commander in the armed forces who used one of their songs as kind of motivation when he was literally buried alive in Haiti in the 2010 earthquake. And uh, the song Lovers in a Dangerous Time, the cover uh, that the Berenike ladies recorded like 20 years ago. And, you know, Ed, he's obviously, you know, he's been living with that song for 20 years and he's heard people talk about it. But I don't think he's ever heard anyone talk about like how it actually literally saved their life <laughs> in an earthquake. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like you, like you say, having the artists hear these stories um, sort of shines a different light on, on their own experience. So I think, I think there's connections like that that we were not expecting. Um, and it's kind of a nice sort of synergy of all kinds of different things.
0: And how did you explain the project to people when you're trying to solicit their stories?
1: Well, that's a good question because at first when I say, you know, we're doing a book of stories about the impact of music and the transformative nature of music, it can be a little bit vague. And I think what we ultimately did was when we had our first, you know, dozen or so stories, um, you're able to use those as kind of examples to other people and sort of slowly leverage um, the interest from others. So that was one technique we, we used. Also, you know, when we when we first started, we didn't have anyone famous in the book, and as we slowly got a few through our own little connections and our own little universes, we managed to get a couple of people of some influence. And from that, you know, other dominoes start to fall. So, you know, when you have a number of well-known people in a book, it's a little easier of a sell to another well-known person that they'd be involved. So um, it, it gets a little easier and now. Even now that we have the book, I think if we were to, to continue to collect stories. It's almost even easier now. You can just point to the book and say, well, here's what we've done. And we'd now like you um, to, to contribute, whoever that next person might be. You know?
0: Yeah. Will there be like a part two of the book or other projects in the works? Well,
1: there's time of it. I mean, I think there's no end to the stories. And I think we could. Uh, we're interested in doing more. It could be a documentary. Could be all kind. Of, this thing can take on many, many forms. I mean, it could be, for example, we could do a sports edition where we just only get the stories from athletes, from anything from like high school athletes right up to Olympic athletes, or professional athletes, or NCAA players, or whatever. It would be that's one idea. There's an idea to do a youth book with just stories of youth. Uh, and their songs. And I think, you know, there's all kinds of these, and also you can do it anywhere, you know, not just in Canada, you could do one in the US, or you can do one in the UK. So I think because music is so universal, and stories about music are universal, and how it helps people, I think that message is is also universal. So I think there's really not a limit to the possibilities.
0: And in in different sections of the book, there's some explanation of the science behind the benefits of music therapy. Yep. Um, was there a, a fact or story in the science of it that surprised you? Well, uh,
1: what, what's happening now with music therapy and the science they're doing is generally speaking surprises me because it's come a long way from, you know, music therapy emerged decades ago. And then in the seventies uh, to me, as a professional musician musician, pardon me growing up, I always felt that it had a bit of a PR problem or you know it had stigmas attached to it. It was like music therapy is just basically circle time with tambourines and kumbaya and that's not what music therapy is, obviously, but it's also in terms of the science behind it, um, great strides have been made in the last few decades, uh, particularly in the last ten years, and that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about what what, what we're funding down at camH is they now have the, the ability to, at the sort of the brain chemistry level, measure the impacts of protocol-based music therapy on a cohort of patients. So in the in the past, it's very hard to gather evidence as to what kind of uh, impact or changes exposure to music therapy would be making on your brain and whether or not it was helping. Um, I mean, there was, I guess, always quantitative uh, or sorry, qualitative measures you could use, but there was never that much empirical quantitative evidence. And so, um, what's happened now is that there are actual research projects, in in particular, one down at CAMH led by Dr. Jeff Meyer, where we're looking at very specific data, and that data uh, they can you know literally create um, radioactive isotopes, which then can be you know ingested and then measured in your brain through PET scan imagery, and look at how. Um, exposure to music therapy and to music can actually change your brain chemistry. And that kind of stuff is what really leads to changing policy in this country. So that the only, um, so not, so, so a pharmaceutical solution isn't the only solution to those suffering from anxiety and depression. And that's kind of one of our, our, our goals is to ultimately provide people and to provide healthcare uh, providers and to provide really to change government policy so that, there can be alternative ways of treating depression and anxiety.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, obviously we hear certain music and we either feel calm or energized or things like that, but I mean it's really cool to see that there's actual science behind it. Um I actually was looking for music for cats at one point. Oh yeah, right on. <laughs> and Why I just not? and I discovered this musician that he did all this scientific research of what particular sounds would calm a cat down. And so he has an album and it's called, let me just see. What is it called? Music for cats.
1: Right on music for cats. That makes sense. Why not?
0: It's his name is David T E I E.
1: T E I E. Oh, cool. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, uh, at it's very core music is sonic energy right so the fact that it can have an impact um on you know animals or humans at a very sort of um very f- physical physiological level is doesn't really come as any surprise and it's you know the certain types of sounds and there's all kinds of you know research being done now with sound therapy which is not music so much, but it's just like t- certain types of waves and sound and tones, and how they affect your your mind. And uh, it's fascinating stuff that you know. Um, it, the fact that our as as humans, I mean, music's been around as a part of our of who we are for well, li- literally forever. And I think it's one of those constants, uh, even even transcending language um, and storytelling. I mean, music has been around for so long and it's an integral part of what makes us human.
0: Yeah, yeah. And everyone has their own story. So Totally. Yeah, that that's true. You can share it on social media too and get like a movement happening. Well, that's kind of the idea. I mean,
1: something about the stories which is, you know, worth noting is that when we initially started up this project and uh, Terry Stewart, my friend had suggested that maybe there's a magic playlist or a set of songs that we can, we can find uh, by collecting what, what songs make people happy. And, and I immediately thought this was, sounded very suspicious because the fact that a song makes you happy doesn't mean it's going to make me happy. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite your, your happy song or your song that makes you feel good could make me cringe. So I just yeah. sort of discredited <laughs> this idea very early, but what, intrigued me was the fact that the stories behind the songs are actually what make it really human and very interesting to me because it really speaks to the power of music to really have an impact on your life and i think that is ultimately what we're looking at here and not so much the songs themselves um but more like the stories behind those songs and they reframe the way you look at a song so suddenly like you could tell me what your favorite or your happy song is and i could just detest that song but once you tell me the reason why um, that can change everything. And I think that's kind of the essence of these stories.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And the book is cool. Like it, all the photos in the book are like old album covers. <laughs> yeah,
1: that gives, got to give credit to Peter Cocking, our designer from Page Two, who is our publisher in Vancouver. And, you know, it, it was immediately clear to us that we can just go off and use all of the artwork from original records or from, you know, the was in the songs. So we needed to to come up with something visual and Peter Cocking uh, not only designed uh, a few album covers, he designed an album cover for every single story. And you're right. They look like um, kind of blue note nostalgic. Um, So yeah, I mean, it was, uh, that's just the fact that uh, the book is really the work of an army of people. Uh, You know, our publisher and our editors and writers and writers, graphic designers and all of these people working in tandem.
0: It would make a great Christmas gift.
1: <laughs> I think you're right about
0: that, Diane. Now that we're heading into the holiday season. Yeah, hint, hint. I think
1: it would be because it's really it's very universal and you can buy it uh, literally anywhere across the country. It's available at Costco or Indigo or... Um, chapters and Coles, all the big chains, but it's also available at your local bookstore. And if they don't have it, just ask for it because it's on everyone's radar and they can get it in a couple of days. Or you can always buy it online at Amazon or through our website, com or through um, Indigo and Chapters online.
0: What are some of the highlights of your career as a music composer? Well...
1: That's a big question. I mean,
0: I I saw that you were nominated for an insane amount of awards. Yeah, I've been very lucky. 20 Gemini and Canadian Screen Award nominations. I've been lucky to. I think that's that's
1: more of a function of just being really busy and not being very good (laughs) because I do work on a lot of shows. (laughs)
0: He's not going away. I guess we gotta nominate him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's the law of odds. Like, just if you keep if you keep writing music, eventually you're gonna get nominated. So I've done yeah a lot of TV and uh, film work in this country for over 20 years, and I I mean there's so many different. I mean to watch the industry change has been kind of fascinating. But you know when you ask what are some of the highlights, I mean I I, I don't really want to talk about awards. I don't think of those as highlights. I think of uh, the individual projects I get to work on and. Truthfully, whenever there's – I mean, I love making music, and I love making music with other people, uh, whether it be as a recording artist, just a performer, or as a composer. And when we get to make music for film that involves other people, um, it can be very gratifying. So, you know, it's not always every day that you get to to work with an orchestra or with even a chamber ensemble, but when those opportunities arise – I always think they're really sweet and I enjoy them and you know, last night I recorded a trumpet for a new T V show that I'm working on and I recorded cello earlier in the day and uh I put some other, you know, guitars on a track and to have all those instruments just you know, we're all making music together really. It's uh it's really fun.
0: Cool. Um and what first drew you to music when you were a kid? Well,
1: that's a Uh, interesting i mean i i I guess i've always listened to music uh like like most people i and i i started playing the piano a little bit and i really hated it as you would do if you're you know 10 or eight maybe i was eight um actually i was six when i when i first started then i quit and then we moved and then after we moved i restarted in a new city and hated it equally as much but soon after i started playing the piano i found i discovered the clarinet and i liked it more maybe because i just I was better at it because I could already read the music and I was feeling like I was getting results. And then I graduated pretty rapidly onto the saxophone, which is related, but easier than clarinet. Um, And then uh, once I found the saxophone, I found sort of a voice that I could just use. And then I, I I kept playing and that's what I did. So, um, and then the composition part, I was interested in composition. um, I don't know exactly if I could say a date or a time, but, in high school, I was writing music for sure and recording it. And uh, it led me just to ultimately pursue a degree in composition, which I did uh, for university. And who are your musical influences? Well, that's a hu- huge list because I listen to so, much, so, so many different types of music. Um, I mean, I used to listen to a lot of classical music. And, you know, I was always a big fan of Brahms, if that's what you mean, like you Know or Stravinsky or Prokofiev, those are my, you know, some of my favorite composers. Brahms for melody, um, and Stravinsky for rhythm and harmonic invention, and then Prokofiev just for like m- melodic, um, different in a different way than Brahms, but his, his his use of um, just uh, I don't know what you want to call it angularity in, in melody construction, uh, I've always found really fun almost like um i don't know he's like a modern day film composer to me or early day film composer i guess he, he just seemed to have a knack for writing quirky melodies that i really loved um so but then on the pop world i mean there's all kinds of music that i that i love and i'm influenced by uh you know everything from you know the clash to paul simon <laughs> oh uh, it goes all over the place or then there's you know i also play jazz music so there's all kinds of, you know, I've had lots of, I used to be a big listener to uh, actually the Marsalis brothers were a huge influences as a high school student, not only because they were playing jazz, but Wynton was doing some great music and cla- like great classical music. And I was fascinated by, you know, um, his recordings. And I, in fact, started to arrange music based on just trying to play some of the trumpet repertoire that I couldn't play because I was a sax player. So I would, I would play it. I would arrange it for bands so that I could play it. Um, Cause I loved, you know, his recordings of like the Haydn trumpet concerto. And then he did some music, some, some concert band music, uh, wind ensemble arrangements uh, with Eastman that I found really fascinating. This is a, as a young kid. And then as I get older, you know, I, I discovered his brother and I, those are the, I listened to a lot of the, those guys for jazz, but then that led me to other places like, you know the jazz messengers and then the older school like i love stuff like you know the old thad jones and mel lewis recordings which i'm listening to right now just because they came up on my playlist but you know I, i can't really say that there's one kind of music that i that i love more than the next or one composer that i love more than the next uh so i guess i don't really have like a desert island disc unfortunately but it keeps it keeps changing you know i um I, I, I love finding new artists. Um, and, uh, you know, when you find somebody new, you're like, who is this person? And you just sort of discover them and you listen to them. And-
0: so when you were finishing university, did you have any idea that your career would be film composing? Or did you have other plans? Uh, well, no, it was kind of, a,
1: kind of my plan, I suppose. I really always was, was drawn to it. And um, I was always a lover of film and film music. And I, I wanted to do that. Uh, I didn't know how to do that. Um, but I figured it out. Uh, and then I worked as an apprentice with an, another film composer named John Wellsman for years after and learned just a lot of it about the, about the business and about the craft of scoring for picture and, and also the technical aspects of scoring for picture. So I, um, I, I don't want to say it was an accident. I mean, it was pretty intentional in my, what I was trying to do. I didn't know how I was gonna do it or whether it would all work out, but I just kept plugging away um, trying to do stuff.
0: I was wondering if you have to kind of study filmmaking in in order to be good at scoring for film TV.
1: Well, I don't have to study filmmaking, but I think you have to be a fan of filmmaking. and You have to observe Mm -hmm. um, and really try to understand the art of filmmaking and understand how directors think. I think that's a really crucial element to doing the job, and I think it's something that we often overlook. As young composers, we think, "Oh, we can just write music, and the music's going to be fancy, and do this stuff, sort of stuff." But if you think about it from a filmmaking perspective um, and a storytelling perspective, it sort of changes changes a little bit. And I think, you know, like if you know, I always tell young composers, they they're asking me, like, "How do you do? How do you become a better film composer?" And I'm like, "Well, watch where they put the camera." <laughs> probably a good place to start like observe right i remember sitting with a director in my 20s and he was he was going on about how how the camera was moving and i'm like this is obviously obsessing the guy or, or obsession of the of the director and i and i had to realize why and for a director it's not about the music or even about the um the set design or, or it could be about all all those things but it's often about Capturing the story in images—that's what filmmaking is. It's really photography coming to life. And I think, you know, a great cinematographer, a great director, thinks like a photographer in terms how they're framing shots and how they're lighting shots and what kind of lenses they're using. These are like priorities. And I think, you know, as a composer, if you can understand that, you don't have to understand the technical aspect of it, but you have to understand the creative aspect and why these things are important. And so I started watching movies in a different way when I was, you know, in my late teens or in my, in my 20s, just trying to discover, or not even discover, I don't want to make it sound like it was a job, but it was just trying to observe or, or notice these kinds of aspects of filmmaking. Whereas before I would just be listening to the score, suddenly I'm looking at, oh, look at how the camera's moving. As we zoom out, we go up. And that's an interesting kind of uh, convention in filmmaking. It's like, you know, why are we going left to right here? What's going on? It's like, we're seeing, you know, the, we're seeing the story from the eye of the director as the, as the camera moves slowly across, it's revealing the set is revealing the actors and all of these things are being revealed to us carefully by the director in a very deliberate way. And so, you know, there may not be any music in that scene, but it's important to to watch that scene and understand it. You
0: Can know? you explain the process for scoring for a project, like from the moment that you're contacted to contribute all the way through completion, like who's involved? How does that how does that process happen? Yeah, well, it's, it's you're part of a team. You're part of the
1: uh, filmmaking team that includes the editors and you know, we, we work in post production, really. So it's not as big a team as a filmmaking team. It's not like there's key grips and lighting people and makeup and hair and all those people uh, in our lives. But um, the editor is really the starting point. So the when the edit's done or close to being done, they'll often try to recruit the composer. And once we have what's called a lock cut, when the we're getting very close to what the picture will look like. We can start to have a meaningful discussion about music because music has to happen after the cuts are locked. Cause we can't, typically you can't change the images too much because the music will change as well. so you don't want to be writing a whole score and then have it all changed based on the cut. So normally we are the last thing that happens um, after the edit's done. The, um, you'll sit down with, the creative people involved and so that might be a director on a film or a documentary and it might be a team of people like a showrunner or a creator on a tv show we'll all sit in a room and we'll discuss in very vague terms what you know we think is kind of happening with the music and sometimes they'll have discussions early on by email and then by phone calls and then ultimately we get to a place where we're creatively sitting in a room and we're going to actually listen to some music and try to it's very hard to talk about music. So listening to music and hearing examples sometimes is the best route. And then you do that. And then after you've done that, you go off and write. And it's just really about writing um, melodies and trying to understand what works with, you know, the picture and trying to be sympathetic to what's happening on screen and trying to find a sonic palette for that story. Uh, And then once you've got that sort of happening, you start to do demos and you start to write little pieces of music that you can then share with the creative team. And once they've arrived at, yes, these are the places where the music will, I should say, there's a thing called the spotting session where we sit down and we discuss not only the aesthetics of the music, but specifically where the music will happen in the picture. And once that's happened, then everybody can go away and the composer writes and then, you know, that's when the composer sends music in as demos. And once those are signed off, then depending on the type of the score, you may then record those instruments you know because in a demo you're not going to record an orchestra you're going to record a fake orchestra uh or a fake uh trumpet or whatever you have and then once everyone's sort of on the same team then you go off and you can uh you can record it uh and then you can mix it and then you send it to the uh to the mixing house where they mix all the elements so for example everything we do in post has to be You know, it's mostly to do with sound. So things like Foley, which is like sound effects that are created by humans, like keys and door handles, footsteps. And then there's sound effects like planes and trains and bombs. They're added in, obviously. And then dialogue is often replaced. Then there's the music. And so all of those four elements are then combined on a mixed stage over a course of many days. And then at the end, hopefully everyone everyone likes it. (laughs) And then we all sign off. (laughs) And it's... And it goes on t- TV or on, uh, to, the, to the cinema. Now, that can happen. I like to say that happens over the course of about three months, but sometimes it feels like it happens in about eight days. <laughs> because it <doesn't>. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they, they, I mean, I think technology is a great thing, but it does um, beget compressed time schedules, it seems, because you know, things can happen much faster. So can you imagine like in the old days, people would say, well, type me up a proposal. And then you'd have to go off and write it, you know, by hand. And then you'd have to type it. And that would take you hours, possibly. And now you're editing and you're writing on the fly because it's going into a word processor and you're just doing it. In fact, now you're doing it in the cloud. So it's like literally shareable within, well, in real time, actually. They can, you know, people now can watch you type it if you, if you really wanted to. So it's like the world is is funny how how much faster everything has become it doesn't make mean we have more time what it means we we do is we have more output it seems so uh you know i think we're as busy as we ever ever have been and i'm not talking about film composers i'm talking just about as a civilization it seems you know our deadlines are shorter um things are more compressed um to make you know you make more podcasts than you would 10 years ago uh or i guess podcasts weren't as i guess they were around but the idea of doing recorded voices, you know, literally I'm speaking into you, your phone and, you know, you're recording me. It's like all done in, in, over, over the airways, whereas in the old days it was done, you know, in a studio and it took more time. And there was operators and engineers yeah. and assistants and people get making coffee. And there was a whole industry
0: surrounding just recording someone's voice. And where does the music supervisor come in in that process? And what is their role? So a music
1: supervisor, yeah, they kind of have one thing they can do is they can uh, be a conduit between the composer and the production. They're often hired way earlier on because they can help to furnish the producers and the creators with some ideas about what they think the music should sound like. So that's one very important role is that they can sort of be, you know, well, this is the kind of music I think will work for your show and here's some examples and now find a composer so they might be involved in recruitment of composers and things like that the other thing they do is um is help with the placement of songs and using non-composed music in a show because if you watch tv shows or or movies very often there's elements of music that are not written for the for the screen but they're you know uh they're songs that are pulled from from these huge catalogs of recorded music so um, they facilitate that because that also helps to brand the show. So depending on what kind of show you're doing, you know, if you're working on a period drama, um, the music supervisor would not only help sort of define what the, what the style of music would be for that period drama, but also help to source out music from that era, whether it be a big band track or a classical music track or whatever the, whatever the show demands, the music supervisor kind of steers that process and uh yeah that's and then there's also the licensing which is a bit more of a technical aspect of it where they actually have to secure rights and help facilitate that
0: right right so what was your first break like what was your first big uh film or tv that you scored
1: well the very first one i did was a movie called silver wolf i'm using that as my starting point i had done some student films but that was the first time i got really paid uh to write music for a tv show and actually it was a it was a movie of the week, I believe. Um, And it was a a movie that, um, that took place in the Rockies and it was about a, um, well, I won't get into the details, but it was a, it was a movie that, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, How did I get it? I got it through my, I had an agent and I got it through my agent. Uh, And the way I got the agent was through having done a lot of student works and just having created enough stuff on a reel that, sort of warranted that i knew what i was doing and i'd worked as an assistant for a long time so i kind of knew what i was doing technically uh and then i got this film and i think it was fairly low budget and so i was like yeah i'll do that and um i didn't like i said i didn't know what i was doing and i thought i had a really good idea what i was doing and i was listening to the director who turned out was in montreal but ultimately the produ- the production company was in los angeles and it turns out they were the people i should have been listening to and when i did finally Um, get notes from them it was it was a bit of a rude awakening because i had worked for two weeks on this film just getting sort of uh you know tacit approval from the director but not realizing that it didn't really matter what his opinion was because ultimately it was going to be the production company that was going to have the final say (laughs) so then i had to redo a bunch of stuff and that's i think the lesson i learned was like who's the boss right that's the person you need to appeal to and so that's what i I started to do that. Next just you know, really understand, you know, the creative process and who's in the room and who's actually making the calls. So uh, it wasn't a great way to begin uh, my first film because I think I spent most of my budget on just the engineer and recording some real instruments and trying to make it sound good. But you know that TV that company went on to make a number of different movies, and I managed to work with them for a number of years, and then that sort of led to other work which is sort of it's it's a bit like any industry i mean you know if you're a carpenter you're going to get your next gig from based on your last gig you know you're you're slowly building clientele based on your performance
0: yeah so that's kind
1: of yeah that's the story yeah
0: what advice do you have for up-and-coming musicians who want to score for film and tv like how would they get their start what's the best place to learn well i think the old apprentice model is pretty darn good uh it's
1: how i learned and i've since then gone through I've had a number of apprentices work uh here at my studio in fact there's one working here right now um he just finished an apprentice program uh through the uh the screen composers guild and now he's working uh on the clock like he's being paid now to work and I think that's a great way to learn the ropes now to do that you obviously need some foundation so it depends on the kind of music you you want to write and what kind of what interests you so you don't necessarily have to go to composition school and work with orchestral instruments because you may not have any interest in writing orchestral scores you might be a synth person and you really be interested in like finding out you know how to explore sounds and sound design kinds of things and so whatever your interest is make sure you are capable and, and have the skills in that world and then also try to align yourselves with people who are making that kind of music so you can possibly act as a um you know an assistant or an apprentice to a person like that cuz that's the best way to learn cuz you know the rules change so quickly so you want to get a good foundation and you want to uh in tandem with all that you want to be writing music you want to make sure that you have evidence that you can if you want to be a composer you have to compose so you just need to to write lots of music and i think that's the, those of us that's the same playbook for so many different industries really like if you want to be a, a journalist or a writer you need to right if you want to be a novelist same thing if you want to be uh, a baseball player you need to practice so i think it's 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 just a matter a matter of like trying to find the balance between doing the, the hard work to get the skills but then also to expose yourself to people in the business or the industries that you're interested in who are doing the work and you can just learn from that that's uh those are great ways of, of trying to get at least a foothold.
0: yeah in in anything relationships are important so you have to Be able to network with the right people in different industries.
1: That's probably even the I should have said that first, Diane. That's like so important. Is you know your your ability you know works well with others is a is you know if that wasn't if that wasn't on your report card as a gold star when you were in grade two, that's maybe where you should start. Start working well with others because ultimately, um, especially these days, in so many industries are collaborative. um, Yeah, there's the there's the one or two screenwriter geniuses who just sit. Uh, in their rooms and write off great novels or great uh, movie scripts. Uh, but most people aren't like that. And most people need to work in a team of people and then, you know, have a specific set of skills that you can bring to that team. And that's how you, I think, advance is that you really are, you know, you do work well with others because you want to be, you want to be someone who can collaborate, especially if you're talking about film and, t- and composing for film, if you're not a collaborator, then it's not really the job that you should be looking at.
0: As an artist, we all have to be entrepreneurs. What are some of the lessons and advice that you have on how to manage a creative career?
1: Well, that's a really tough question because I don't know the answer.
0: That could go in many different directions. Yeah, because it's, uh,
1: we're not all entrepreneurs. I wish we were, uh, and it's not natural. So uh, I don't want to impose a set of rules or uh, ideas on somebody that aren't sort of fitting. So I want to just say that you know you got to be natural, and be yourself, and be authentic. And what feels right for you might be the right thing to do. In other words, you know, if you're not a natural marketing person, then don't try. I mean, get help. This is what I'm trying to say. Um, so you know, like your strengths and know yourself, and you know, don't be afraid to ask for help and to collaborate with people. I mean. Yeah, there's a bit of risk involved and I guess being an entrepreneur involves risk cuz something like a website if you are natural if you have a good eye and you're a good designer then you can do you can do that but if you're not then it's difficult to impose that on somebody and so you just would go out and find the right fit for you and so if you're not feeling like you're a natural entrepreneur and you don't know how to sell yourself I think talk to your friends um who are like that and just and ask for their advice and don't feel like you need to change yourself and become like this marketing person. Instead, what you you can do is you can say, well, okay, I'm 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 a great trumpet player, but I'm not really good at getting my name out there. But you can um, you know solicit advice from people who you do know are good. Maybe not even people in music, but people like, let's say you have a brother-in-law who happens to be works for a marketing firms like, listen, ask ask questions and find out what's going on. And you know, think of your think of the world as your classroom in that way. And I think that you can learn a lot because it's not about, um, like there's this kind of do-it-yourself attitude, which is great, but it's impossible to do everything yourself. And I think you have to remember that be easy on yourself and don't, don't, you know, don't be shy to to get help and, and also be a student learn. So for example, like with this book project that we were discussing earlier, I was not really ever big into social media. I, I mean, I had a Facebook page and I had a few things on Instagram, but I never really understood the power of it until it came time to market a book. And then I was like, okay, well, I have to activate all my accounts and get engaged. But let's hire somebody who can teach us how to actually post things every day and how to get good content online and to grow your following. These are things I couldn't do myself. And I'm not kidding you to say that I could I mean I, I'm, not, or I'm not kidding I'm kidding myself that's what I'm going to say to pretend that I could but so I think it's important to understand your strengths and use those and you know I always imagine a, a world where we use a bit more of a barter system where you know if you do have a friend or a colleague or a brother-in-law or something who has those skills don't be afraid to like tap into that and then possibly you can provide some kind of assistance to that person so its it's just about again it's going back to what we said before about collaboration and communicating with people and trying to to, I mean, if you sit in your in your room by yourself uh, for hours and hours, it's very hard for you to connect with people and to to build meaningful relationships, which might help you.
0: I think for a lot of musicians, the DIY is because they can't afford to hire people to help them in all these different things. So um, sometimes you have to learn how to do it yourself, or like you were saying. I always say if you're a up-and-coming musician, make friends with a photographer that's up-and-coming and make friends with a web designer that's up-and-coming and you can all help each other and grow together.
1: That's true. And and it's, that's very good. And don't be afraid. You know, there's this adversity. Uh, and I teach young kids and sometimes, you know, they want to be um, musicians and they want to just do music. And there's an adversity to, to getting a career outside of your um feel because they feel like they're diluting their creativity and i and i go back to something that robertson davies the late canadian novelist once said about grants and about you know not working and he 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 was a full-time editor of a newspaper i think the peterborough examiner or something and someone once mentioned asked him a question about you know um with the full-time job how do you find time to write and his answer was something like, "Well, with a, without a full-time job, I wouldn't have anything to write about." And it's almost like you—you you find your your inspiration and your creativity is—it it comes from the most likely places, um, because you know you may be working in a job that's not related to your art. Yeah, there can fodder, and and there can still be. Um, things that you can draw upon as an artist, which is really important. So that's, I think, where we get our stuff from. And I was thinking to myself the other day, because I work in my studio all day long. And yesterday I went, and sometimes that can get very tiresome because you're looking at the same stuff all the time and you're you're chained to your desk and it's not very inspiring. And yesterday I I had to go play a gig and I was out playing music, but it's nothing to do with film scoring. It was, I was doing a, a concert thing, I was doing rehearsals. And then I came home and I was making some dinner or I was doing some chores in the house or whatever and I was thinking about going back to the studio and suddenly it was like it felt very fresh because I hadn't been there all day. And I, I suddenly was really motivated to go write something. Whereas if I had been there all day and I wasn't out of the house, it, it's not the same thing. I was thinking about you know the hobbyist who has you know, a ham radio or the, who's building a car in the garage or something, a woodworker or somebody who's knitting a quilt or something that they do off hours and how much care and passion they have for those things because they can't do it all the time. And so I think when you're denied doing your art all the time, it actually, it, intensif- it intensifies it. So don't be afraid to, especially if you're young because the worst thing about um, being a young person, especially in Toronto is financial instability. And so you want to make sure you get some kind of footing in some kind of industry, whether it be in public relations or whatever you, you know, being an accountant, whatever you, whatever you whatever skills you have, but just because you're an accountant doesn't mean you can't write great jazz music. Like Charles Ives, the great American composer, sold insurance. And I, I'm not to say that that's the path, but it it don't be afraid to that you don't you know the attitude that well I can't work because of my art is I think an outdated one or it's it's mis, it's a misguided one I think it's something we have to be be careful about because as artists it's from working with people and experiencing other people and other lives that we actually you know get get our fuel so you know, I think that I, 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 you know, I just talked to a trumpet player yesterday. And he was talking about working at the at the local rink, and he said it was the best job he ever had because he got to work with different people every day, and he got to make music at night. And it was an eight hour day because it was a city city job. You know, it was like there was no stress involved in the in the job, and it got him to think about music and to think about creativity stuff. And then when you get home, it's like you're ready to go.
0: Cool, you put, you phrased all that so much more gentle than I do. <laughs> I'm I, I'm a bit more tough love.
1: <laughs> yeah, well maybe maybe I just try to be sensitive because I know that I don't I don't want to impose my my set of rules on anyone else, but I'm just giving you my two cents, you know. I'm not uh if you were my, if you were my really best friend, I would probably be a little, maybe a little hard on you. I don't yeah.
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I work with those musicians or artists that'd be like, I, I don't want to work on social media. I don't want to do marketing. I just want to work on my art. And I'm always like, good luck with that. <laughs> no, no one will hear your built brilliant music. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I go back to that Robertson-Davies thing a few times. I, it, and I remember reading it. I was in high school. And it was in the Globe and Mail. He wrote a letter to the editor. And he was actually, it was an indictment against the grant system because he was feeling that grants were actually ruining artists. And I do not necessarily agree with that. I think grants are important and gives people um, a little bit of stability when they need it. But he was speaking about how one can hide behind these things as instead of actually... Um, you know, his, his model was just have a job. Now, you know, maybe those are different times. And, but at the same time, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, you, you, he he did, he worked as an administrator, as an editor of a newspaper, working with deadlines and, you know, I won't say emails because it wasn't probably emails in those days, but just, you know, working with publishers and having to deal with donors and or advertising and all the other kinds of things that we deal with. And, you know, those are, those are nothing to do with him writing a novel, right. but I think it's what inspired him to write a novel.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's all I have for you. Right on. <laughs> Any final words of wisdom?
1: I don't know. You've got a lot of them out of me so far. That's all I got. I don't know. I just um, enjoy the, enjoy the ride. Is like, I always like to say it's like, it's um, sometimes we get, we get buried in, it, you know, it's finding the balance between zooming in too much on the minutia of the day and not looking at the big picture. But the, the people often do the wrong thing too. They look out, they zoom out too much, and they get overwhelmed by the fact that oh my gosh, I have a deadline, or I have I have to finish my university, or I got to go to college, or I got I got to get these things. It's like just to zoom in on the day and focus yeah. in on the moment, and not try to like it's finding that balance. It's important to zoom out sometimes, but it's important to just stay zoomed in sometimes too and, and not get preoccupied with what's happening next February.
0: Yeah, it's good to have a vision and then break that down into smaller achievable goals that you only have to look at. Okay, what do I have to do this week, this day, yeah. today? What do I got to do? It's so much um, easier and not so overwhelming. When you think of the big picture, you're like, oh, I'm never going to get there. you know. So you can break it down. <laughs> yeah,
1: Zooming out, you can really ruin it for yourself. Totally. Yeah,
0: totally. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So where can people find you online? What's your website? I'm
1: Rob, I'm Rob Carley.com or Robert Carley.com. And on Twitter, you can, you can follow me at Robert Carley. Uh, And that's, Me, but also as we spoke about before, the um, Awesome Music Project is theawesomemusicproject.com, where you can find information about the book, but also you can find all our social media tags there.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Diane. Thanks for listening. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please share it with your fellow performing artists and entertainment fans. For a transcript, visit sing. Thrive dot com slash zero three two. Thanks for listening to Sing Dance Act Thrive. Be sure to join the mailing list at DianeFoy com to gain access to exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, and an invitation to our private Facebook group of purpose driven performing artists and industry influencers.